When you make the numbers, any European country is a billion dollar market, or more than a billion dollar market. So it doesn't make any sense to think that the only market is, is the US. Of course, the biggest in the world, especially for software. But if you look at Europe, there are many huge markets as well. I'm Pep Lau. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS, because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do you win? This week, Bernard Ferrero, CEO of Factorial HR. It's an all-in-one HR solution targeting small to medium-sized businesses. They're a unicorn. Discover how Factorial HR conquered SMB challenges with an all-in-one solution. Learn the strategic moves behind their rapid growth from local to global markets. Understand the importance of adaptability in product expansion and market penetration. Let's get into it. So we started already as an all-in-one software, but early in that day, we were thinking of building a time management all-in-one software that included a benefit platform. Like the Zenefits in the US, there was nothing similar in Europe. We're building a similar thing in Europe. Then we evolved in different ways. Starting as a all-in-one from day one, it's hard to start because then what are you? And also takes a lot of time to build the software. So why did you decide to go all-in-one from the get-go? We were targeting SMB and we wanted to target SMB right from the beginning. And if you go to visit an, an SMB, the first thing you learn is that you cannot be fixing problem by problem. No, They want a solution that is complete and um, and, and they don't want to have a vendor for every kind of problem they have. You need to come up with a value proposition that solves many problems at once. The other reason is the economics. You need to charge them at least the cost of visiting them. So for that, if you want to charge the SMB to solving one of their problems, you need to solve enough problems to have a decent annual contract value. So that we had that in mind right from the beginning. So we knew we had to solve problems that were worth the visit, basically. SMB segment is also notorious for bad churn, essentially. Did that factor in that if you have your fingers in more things, there's going to be better retention or? Yeah, SMB is a, is a kind of a higher volume, lower margin because it's higher churn kind of segment. We know that, but there are also many SMBs being created all the time. It depends on the size of the SMBs that have the, the smaller, obviously the higher the churn. We are not at the micro SMB segment, which is a very high churn kind of segment. We start at 15 employees or to 500. No? That would be our, our broad segment. 500 or even we have companies with more than a thousand employees, but that would be not the sweet spot. The, the sweet spot is from 15 to 500, which has less churn than the micro businesses that go from one to 10 employees. Was that your ICP from the get-go or did you learn that this is the sweet spot over time? That was our ICP from the beginning. We moved from 20 to 60, 50, 60 that we are right now, the averages. But right from the beginning, we knew that our software would not help a company that has less than 10 employees. From the outset, Bernat identified small to medium-sized businesses as their primary target market, recognizing the inherent demand within this segment for a comprehensive HR solution. Despite acknowledging the risk associated with high churn rates, he pointed out the vast potential of the market, underscoring the strategic foresight in catering to an apparently limitless customer base. Here's Bernat discussing this limitless base with their drive to reach many different international markets. 
Yeah, we wanted to start an international company. So we did everything in English right from the beginning. We hired international talent and we knew that we were going to target the whole world. But our product served initially only Spanish customers. Then at some point when we realized that we could serve Spanish customers, we started selling in France too. Then we opened nine markets at the same time. So our product was serving multiple geographies. SaaS companies, they all start in English, aiming for the U.S. market because it's the biggest, the most money. You guys did not do that. What was the thinking behind it? We are targeting almost every SMB. In fact, we did some contests in the beginning when we would call uh, databases, yellow pages, and we would be selling one out of three calls. So almost everybody is our target. And when you make the numbers, any European country is a billion dollar market or more than a billion dollar market. So it doesn't make any sense to think that the only market is the US. Of course, it's the biggest in the world, especially for software. But if you look at Europe, there are many huge markets as well. So we started targeting the European markets. Is targeting different countries in Europe, Spain and France and Germany, is it only about marketing in German language or other I wish. No, there are many more considerations from all perspectives. Europe is a very highly regulated market. So we have a lot of compliance, weird regulations, no, many rules. Understanding this way of thinking, it's a must and it's different market by market. So, so you need to understand what's the regulatory environment in every market. And that's very specific for our product, which is an HR product. And every time management product is very tight to compliance. Every payroll product is very tight to compliance. So in terms of products, they are different, but not only. Also the marketing, the behavior of people are different, market by market. And they are very different, not just a little bit different. No, The pricing strategies are different. Uh, almost everything is, is different. Of course, when we started, the first thing we did is translating to all the languages for all the countries in Europe. And that managed to, got, to get us some customers to start learning from. But if you want to scale, you need to understand that every market is different and hire local teams for every market. What's an example of how a pricing strategy might be different from country to country? There are countries that are more used to discounting. For example, Spain. Spain is a country that is it's very open to discounting. Customers expect some kind, some sort of discount. Whereas there are other markets like Germany, in which discounts don't work. People don't don't expect discount at all. That's just an example. But they're willing to pay much more for a software. Uh, you know, so the price point is different. But the level of quality of expectation of compliance of precision is different as well. So. There are different tolerance, there are different price points, there are different reactions to discounting. So you have to take that into account as well. How long did it take you guys to hit first million in revenue? Three years. And in fact, it, it's funny because it actually took us one month to go from 100K. So it took us three years to go from zero to 100K of ARS. <laughs> and then one month to go from 100K to 1 million. Why? Because we were initially a free product and we were monetizing through brokerage. We were, we were selling insurances, we were selling different kinds of products, lateral products that didn't bring us that much revenue and margin. But one day we decided that this was uh, not going to scale, so we would have to charge for the SaaS, just like any other software. Um, it was a risky move for us because we had a a lot of active customers and we were scared whether they, we would keep them or they would leave. 
and we made different scenarios. And it ended up being best on the best scenario that we made. And most people paid. And not only we went from 100K to more than a million, but we also became profitable in one month. Bernard says it took Factorio three years to go from zero to 100K in ARR, but only one month to reach 1 million in annual recurring revenue. What changed? They let go of their free use model and started charging for their services. Though this isn't quite a freemium strategy, it's not unlike what most businesses choose to do. Here's Lucid Software's founder, Carl Sun, and VP of sales, Dan Cook, talking about gaining 10 million freemium users before jumping to an enterprise model. It was also around that time that people in the industry, like Jason here, were talking about uh, the freemium model and uh, saying quotes like this. So he started by saying, we'd all love to do freemium because we don't have to hire salespeople. And I have to admit, that was very much my mentality when I started the company. I grew up at Google, and I think there was this belief that if you build a great product, people will come, and somehow they'll just decide to pay you, and, and life will be good. Of course, what Jason went on to say to finish that quote is that you know we all figured out that there's not enough businesses to build a $100 million business uh, on freemium alone. I didn't know how to think about what the sales process should be or how to think about how efficient it was. I was concerned that layering on a sales team would add cost and concerned about what that would do to our business model and our unit economics. As you move from a freemium model to a non-touch self-service and then a light touch inside sales, and as you continue down this food chain, how the costs obviously increase, but they don't increase linearly. They increase in an exponential format. And so I think the takeaway here is if you decide and if you're a part of this move from freemium to enterprise, be prepared to have conversations, tough ones sometimes, about what you should build and what you shouldn't build. Uh, we've had to do that. And then how long did it take you to go from uh, 1 million to 10 million? That took us two years more than a half, two year, two, two, three years. Another yeah. three years. And so how did your process of acquiring customers change before the first million and then turning on monetization and then after? What changed and how were you acquiring customers? So we started doing mostly SEO organic. That was our only channel in the first three years. We had a free product, which helped. And we attracted dozens of thousands of users who used our product. Then we started, well, we raised money in the, in the meantime, no? in the, this year, in the third year, when we proved that we could monetize, that we're profitable, we're growing. Then we raised 18 million euros, and that was 2020. And then 2021, we're growing internationally. And it was a very good year to fundraise, so we raised 80 million euros. And then we started investing in many more channels. So... Of course, changing the, the financial capabilities of the company change also how you look at the, the acquisition channels. Uh, often you, you screw it up at that point. <laughs> you start spending money in many ways. But we, we identified other channels that work. We did paid marketing. We tried different levels of like, tension in, in, in paid marketing you know, until we found a, our sweet spot. We started outbound. Uh, an outbound motion in, in our sales team. We started a channel team that build alliances and, and partnerships that now are working quite well and they are important part of our new pipeline. So we started expanding in, in many other ways. We did events, we started doing events, we started doing affiliate. No, we started trying more things as we grow and as we raise money. But still today, our main channel, even now, is still organic. Mm -hmm. 
organic traffic content. We will content and tools for our users, for our prospects, and that brings us a lot of traffic. Back in 2020, you said that you invest everything in growth, always prioritize growth over short-term profitability. How has that changed now that we're in this era of efficient growth? It changed completely. So I think that's what we have to do as entrepreneurs. Now we need to understand what are the constraints that we have, what are the opportunities. Now we have to take every. We need to have a very strong vision, and then everything else is tactics. No, and even the approach that we have to fundraising is is not so strategic. It's tactic. We need to get to a certain point. And we need to identify what is our ability to get resources to get there. And if we can accelerate, all the better. We have a long-term plan that we want to achieve, but if we can go faster, we will always take it. Uh, so when we realized that the market was changing, we started changing our approach of how do we see countries? How do we see channels? So we, start with, we stopped channels that were not that profitable. We started killing channels. We started killing countries. Not countries. We didn't kill countries, but we started asking those countries to be profitable. So we have some countries that we call core markets that we, they have a growth target period, always with a payback period associated. Of course, we have always efficiently metrics in every market, but they are growth markets. So we spend more in more channels to grow there. And, and there are other markets that are profitability oriented. So they have a bottom line, a contribution margin target. And the managers there are having, making decisions in a complete different mindset. So it changed a lot, actually. It changed a lot the way we see our growth, the way we see our bottom line. We have a plan to be profitable, and we're executing a plan to be profitable. We have resources to be forever alive, and we're very paranoid <laughs> in being alive. No? Even if we would not fundraise anymore, we would still execute our plan, we would still grow at the pace that we're growing, we would still keep everything as usual. How often are you paying attention to the competitive landscape, seeing what the competitors are doing, then and shifting your product and marketing strategy based on that? Not too much. You hear it because we have a lot of sales people that of course come to me and to my team, the product team, and we say, look at this competitor, they're doing this, look at this offer, look at this that. So we, it's impossible not to hear, but we try to build our own product based on our own learnings on our learnings from our clients, not so much on, on what the others are doing. Bernat mentions paying little attention to the competitive landscape, but how it's important to listen to their salespeople when it comes to serving their customer base. A similar point was mentioned in our episode with Greg Gallant of MuckRack. We always tried to make sure that we never obsessed about them and that we did things our own way. And that was a big part of our success. But then what ends up happening is that you have to really arm the sales team with good competitive intel because the competitors are doing the same and the competitors will try to spot your weakness or often just make up a weakness. Our sales team needs to explain why we're better than the competition. So if someone says, well, you know what? Muckrack seems awesome but I'm using XYZ competitor now. And like, why should I go through the trouble of learning a new platform? So our sales team needs to be educated to say, let me show you Muckrack because I think we can do things in a much better way. It was more to be educated to know how to speak to the customers about it. You started out as an uh, all-in-one HR solution, but now over time, you've been even expanding that going into finance and other aspects. So talk mm -hmm. a little bit about 
the thinking there? Why expand even further with your product? So we have two basic criteria when we're building product. If we want to be very horizontal, so we want to solve many big problems of small and medium companies, we try to simplify the complexity of an SMB and we try to identify what are the biggest problems around people management where we started, but also cash and compliance. And there we try to identify the biggest problem that we have and we try to move horizontally as a principle. So there's a certain point in which we stop developing more layers of complexity of, of, of depth in our solution and we move to the next problem. And, and the other thing is how do we make, how do we keep things simple? And there's always a tension between uh, adding more functionality and keeping things simple. We want our approach to the market as being the most simple product to use, very easy to use. It doesn't require onboarding. It just, employees just adopt it. We have a very simple mobile application that everybody understands. So because we want to keep that, we want also to keep certain level of simplicity that also helps us when we are having this debate on whether we go more in depth or more horizontal. We move vertical or we move horizontal. And we, the most important thing is to keep being simple, easy to use. So is every product that you add contributing to more revenue, more retention? What are the financial impact of each product that you add? Both. There are products that contribute more to retention because they build history and investment for customers into the platform. And there are products that are more uh, transactional, more nice to have, more fillers. We have more products that are critical, products that are uh, nice to have a combination, but they are all contribute revenue and retention. And so what is the trade-off here? More code base to maintain, you need more developers. Are you guys slower because of this? What are the trade-offs of expanding the product? Well, I mean, what are the trade-offs? Uh, we're paying them as, as we go, but at the end, you always create complexity and we have almost 200 developers and they create complexity even when they go vertical. And when you go horizontally, you might have simple units, but then you have the complexity in the coordination of the products and how the, the experience of discovering, using, connecting the products between them. If you go vertically, then you have complexity in layers and layers within a product. So unfortunately, we are always trying to keep the complexity of our product as simple as possible. So we are rethinking, redoing the, our own experience all the time. But it's impossible to not create complexity when you have 200 engineers and you've been seven years writing code. Mm -hmm. HR tech is globally a big competitive market. It's like a $24 billion market. So why has your company succeeded where many others have not? What are the things that you did well? The thing that, that most of our customers repeat over and over is that people love using our product. They, they love, uh, employees love using our product. It's very easy for them, very simple to understand. And that's why they choose it. But the truth is that many of the SMBs that use Factorial use the software for the first time when they used us. So even though it looks like a very competitive market and it definitely is for bigger companies, the world they, the SAP of the world have built the product like long time ago and, and most companies have a software already. When you go below a thousand employees, there is no so much software in the market. So what we see is a very legacy on-premise tools, lots of spreadsheets, uh, lots of paper, lots of documents, but not, not so much a complete mm. 
solution that connects all the points of a, of a company. So we are replacing spreadsheets. Eh? Even today, we're replacing spreadsheets. Even, even if it's a competitive market, we don't see so much competition. We're not so much afraid of competition. We're afraid of the complexity of the world and the, the organizations, how they complicate their lives a lot. And we try to simplify also, convince them to, to keep things simple inside their processes and organizations. What are the top three lessons you would want to pass on to other B2B SaaS founders? What have you learned about building business? For me, the most important lesson is to enjoy the problem you're solving, to fall in love with the problem you're solving, because it takes so much time, so much energy. You have so many problems that so if you don't enjoy fixing this problem, getting the complexity, falling into the complexity of other people and trying to find out how to make it simple. If you don't enjoy this process, it's going to be very hard. It's going to be very hard that you survive. We spent very bad times also. So when we were in, in our third year with no business model, we're not growing, we didn't have money in the bank. So we thought that we're done, basically. Uh, and because we're very passionate, we resisted. And uh, then there was very good moments in which everybody wanted to to invest in us. So we went from being nothing to being a unicorn company. And a lot of investors wanted to invest and getting angry because we didn't let them in. We lived all kinds of situations, all kinds of experiences in, in this process. And the common thing is that we always enjoyed building solutions to our market, to our clients. And this is what kept us together, kept us alive, kept us focused. Definitely I would do this forever because I, I really enjoy it. And also another key factor is who are your partner? This is something that all entrepreneurs underestimate when they are starting. And uh, they see this guy or this girl who they get along with, and that's it. They, they start this problem, but then the journey is so long, and then you need to make sure that you're building a, a very strong partnership. You want the other to succeed. It's not like just you want to succeed for yourself, and that's it. No, you want the other to succeed. You're going to be patient. You're going to be flexible. There will be times in which the other will be less motivated or more motivated. You, you have to resist this journey and you you have to get along very well with your partner the other thing is being paranoid with with their resources being very optimistic in the business and showing and translating this optimism to everybody in the team but being very extremely paranoid in the resources that you have and in case everything goes wrong make sure that you are alive no matter what uh, we also kept this double mindset and it has worked very well for us so how did factorial hr win one targeted SMBs with an all-in-one solution. We wanted to target SMB right from the beginning. And if you go to visit an, an SMB, the first thing you learn is that you cannot be fixing problem by problem. No, they want a solution that is complete. Two, they expanded internationally with localized strategies going after non-US markets. We wanted to start an international company. So we did everything in English right from the beginning. We hired international talent and we knew that we were going to target the whole world. Then at some point, when we realized that we could serve Spanish customers, we started selling in France too. Then we opened nine markets at the same time. So our product was serving multiple geographies. Three, they kept adding more products to the platform that increased retention and revenue per customer. There are products that contribute more to retention because they build history and investment for customers into the platform. And there are products that are more uh, transactional, more nice to have, more fillers. We have more products that are critical, products that are uh, nice to have a combination, but they are all contribute revenue and retention. And that's how you win. 
I'm Pepla. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.